Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Billy is an astrobiofuturist. This means that he helps people explore solutions to improve human experiences on Earth and in space. He's an inventor and immersive storyteller who aims to reach the next generation of inventors, designers, scientists, and engineers, showing them how to design the future they will wish to see. Billy is also the co-host of Little Giants, a new TV series on Animal Planet that features some of his global explorations of the nature-inspired design process called biomimicry. This was such a fun conversation, y'all. All I remember is just laughing a lot and learning about space and how humans have created these amazing technologies based on the cool things most of us don't know about nature or take for granted. Also, I love that Billy's identity as an astrobiofuturist is a combination of multiple identities and passions, and he talks about how they're all interconnected. This is what I love about the podcast is that I'm hoping that you can create your own identity as an environmentalist and that you don't need to have a degree. All right, I'm going to stop here. So there's also a video recording of this episode. So head on over to our YouTube channel if you're curious. The link is in the bio. Listen on. All right, Billy. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for us on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we made it, Sapna. We're here. We did. Oh, my gosh. It's been our own little odyssey here. But I'm glad we made it work eventually. So before we start here, I just wanted to give a shout out to Dr. Justin Donovan, who connected us. And you all were know each other from your undergraduate days at Howard University. So. Thanks, Dr. Donovan. <laughs> yes, my brother Bison. <laughs> Your brother Bison? Oh, I guess yes. I don't get that. The Howard. The mascot? Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Mascot. The Howard mascot is a bison. That's really cool. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. Pretty cool. Okay, so before I go down a rabbit hole, because I had other questions about the mascot, which is not the story for today. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be an Afro-biofuturist. And... Astro. Oh, Astro. Dang it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm bald under this hat, so <laughs> there's no Afro. I feel like my bias just came out right there when I was saying <laughs> Afro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were the days. Talk about college. Yeah. But <laughs> oh gosh. Apologies, Astro. I was like, it kind of actually still rolls though, I feel. Rolls off the tongue. It definitely rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But but that's not what it is. <laughs> it can be kind of different. Yeah. <laughs> you should totally make stickers of that. You and an Afro <laughs> in space. That'd be cool. I've definitely been looking through Shutterstock trying to find those photos. <laughs> so I'll send one to you as soon as I come across. Please do. Please do. I'll, I'll wait in bated breath. <laughs> so let me correct myself here and say that we're here to talk to you about what it means to be an astrobiofuturist. But this is an environmental podcast, not like in a traditional sense. And that's why mm -hmm. we have you here because... People like you help kind of broaden our perspective about the environment and think about solutions more holistically. So I'm really excited to kind of get your perspective on this because you have an architecture background and biomimicry and space background as well, or space science. Do we call it space science? I don't know. We'll just go with that. Well, I think you checked all the boxes. Okay, cool. I don't want to like do another Afro biofuturist mistake here. <laughs> no, I think that's a different episode with somebody else. And maybe I'm in the background. Just hanging out. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I'm probably not the featured yeah. interviewee on that episode, but I'm probably there in the audience. Yeah. Sure. So we'll start with the first question, which we ask all of our guests, which is what role has nature played in your life? Oh, man. Nature has been central to so many different like cherished memories of mine so my mother was a huge nature 
enthusiast. She loved chimpanzees. She loved monkeys. She'd always have like animal print on, fake animal print for the record. And she'd always have like a some kind of like plush stuffed animal on her office desk that I would always remember seeing anytime I got the chance to visit her at work. So I have so many memories of being a kid that are centered in being outdoors or having some interaction with nature or animals or bugs. And so a lot of it is just rooted in my childhood and a lot of the values that my mother instilled in me. Very cool. So did she have a favorite kind of like, if you asked her, can you choose between a chimp and orangutan, would she be able to tell you which one she preferred more than the other? You know, that's funny. <laughs> like, I don't think she had like the science inclination around okay. nature, but she knew what she liked. and. My mother was a very spiritual person and she loved creation and she loved God's creation and all of it had value. And so from her in the spiritual teachings that she instilled for me, it was this beautiful sense of the divine in everything and how for her, how God in his majesty, in the majesty of God, I'll say all of this creation came into being. And so much of that kind of regality and divinity and appreciation for life existing in all things is one of the big things that she passed on to me. Oh, that's a really good value to pass on to your children, really. Is. Yeah, I'll say. There is divine in every living being. That's every awesome. Every living thing, yeah. So the inspiration that your mother had for nature or animals or whatever that carried on with you, but you ended up doing architecture in undergrad. And that's where you met our former guest, Dr. Donovan's here. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to him again. <laughs> yes, Justin, thanks for the plug, man. <laughs> I love doing podcasts. Yeah, Justin. <laughs> I need to get those sounds for my podcast. Yeah. I think it would be so much more cooler. I want one of those soundboards, but every time that I do it personally, I think people get even, they have a, a stronger reaction to <laughs> a human voice making that sound. So I'm on the fence. Yeah, you know, that's true. Here, 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 you know, I try to spell it in text. I, we're totally off topic. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Okay. But trying to spell, like, is it ease? Is it use first? It'll be a mystery forever. forever. Anyways, yeah, we we're almost <laughs> going down another rabbit hole and it's my fault. So I apologize. <laughs> all right. I'm having fun. This is great. So we're talking about architecture. <laughs> That's what you studied. However, what I really love about your story is you've just reinvented yourself over the years. And now you identify as an astrobiofuturist. So briefly tell us how that came about, how that identity developed over the years. Yeah, so being an astrobiofuturist, to me, it is the amalgamation of all the things that I have been, have practiced, have researched, have looked into, have aspired to be, but didn't realize that I could be simultaneously. So what do I mean by that? As you said, my background, I studied architecture at Howard University. And I've worked in the theme park immersive entertainment industry for 10 years for a certain company of magical allure, I guess I can say. And I've always had an interest in space. But the funny thing about talking about space is often you'll find that a lot of people who are space enthusiasts who are in the industry are engineers. And that's not my background. So I never felt like I had the right to really say or speak or educate people on space until recently, really. And it wasn't until I started talking about space to a group of kids and I saw their eyes light up that it kind of made me feel comfortable talking about this passion and interest that I've had. And also the fact that my point of view of space is rooted in the experience of people who will be traveling to the moon, Mars, other planets for long duration? And what is the experience of a human being who will be on a journey for 
a minimum of eight months through the most alien environment that we have ever as humans encountered when everything about our psychology and our biology is rooted in being on this planet. And so when you think about it as an experience, that became very organic in terms of talking about space and also talking about all of the things that space exploration and space innovation has offered humanity and and all of the unknown ways that the exploration of the stars has inspired or improved the human condition on Earth. So when I looked at all of those things, when I looked at my passion and my background as a designer and as a storyteller, it seemed like there was this amalgamation that lived and coincided within all of what I was doing. And I'd written down this title of Astrobiofuturist in a notebook, and I was going through and trying to articulate this for a presentation I was giving to students on space and the relationship between nature and space. And my wife saw it and she was like, that's the title. That's everything that you're doing is astrobiofuturism. And so she had updated all of my, you know, my LinkedIn profile handle and and all of this. And then a lot of people reacted to it. And I was like, you know what? It's okay for us to define who we are, especially when we have the validation We have all of the merit that makes us those things. And I think sometimes we're so used to compartmentalizing what we do inside the office hours, outside of office hours with these people and that people that we don't ever take time to allow ourselves to be all of who we are simultaneously and just own that. So part of astrobiofuturism for me is just owning all of the things I've been interested in, all of the dreams and aspirations I've quietly had in the back of my soul that I've kind of said, like, this will never happen. And the other part is being at this point in the history of the world where there's so much happening in the space industry that it's also the perfect time to talk about how are we going to create experiences that are going to allow space travelers to live and not be depressed in space and how can we use space to continue to push the perspective that people have about life on earth into further appreciation and care for the planet. Yeah. I love that because there are two things that kind of resonated with me. One is that this identity is an amalgamation of many other identities that you have. And it's kind of given you the in a sense, the license to proclaim and to own those identities and to be sort of like an evangelist, the way I see it in terms of like space education, right? Yes. And that's the other element that I love about your approach to space education and bringing it to to kids and just like everyday Joe Schmo, because at some point, Like you said, we are going to be traveling into space and it's not just going to be astronauts who are going out, right? So how do we start to acclimatize ourselves to this idea? And then how do we make the understanding of space more accessible to most people who wouldn't necessarily think of it as being their own? Which I... I really do appreciate because for me, I don't necessarily think like I have any kind of ownership over like, and I don't mean ownership, like to say that a part of space is for me or whatever, but that knowledge is what I'm really referring to rather than the actual like space. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense. So yeah. I really appreciate that you're bringing this more to the masses in a sense. And you're taking ownership over like your interest in space. There's the other element of astrobiofuturist. It's the bio side of things. And when we spoke earlier, that represented your interest in biomimicry. So tell us about what is biomimicry and how has it changed the world? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, so let me back up a little bit. There's two components to my work as an astrobiofuturist. One is as an experienced designer, bringing my skill set, my background as an experienced designer to design experiences for people in space and on Earth. And then the other side is this, I refer to it as this kind of like space griot or space storyteller 
side, which is about kind of talking about the relationship of the future of living in space to the history of our past, our human past as stargazers and our present context. And then there's another part of that that is rooted in how does nature tie into this? How does nature inform space exploration? And how does nature inform the advancement of the human condition, which is rooted in this idea of biomimicry? And biomimicry comes from the Greek, I want to say, the first word being bio, meaning life, and mimesis, meaning to imitate. So biomimicry is the imitation of life. And it's this approach to innovation and problem solving where we are literally studying the strategies, the functional mechanisms that are in the adaptations of everyday organisms and how these organisms solve problems. And we are applying those strategies, these strategies that are found in nature and rooted in deep patterns found throughout all living things. And we're applying those to coming up with solutions for problems at the human scale. So to give you an example that I think a lot of people might know but not associate with biomimicry is Velcro. So Velcro was created by a Swiss inventor who would take his dog for walks through the forest daily. And when they would come back from these walks, the Swiss inventor, I'm forgetting his name, he would always notice that his dog had these little spherical seeds that had these little curly Q little hooks that came out of the root ball of this seed. It's a burr seed. And all of those little curly Q hooks, their biological function was to attach to the hair of animals that would be traveling through the forest so that the seed could be carried away to another location that might be ideal for it to fall off the animal and eventually grow in that area where it, it fell into another plant and propagate the species again. So the function of those hooks was to capture. And so this Swiss inventor, he was like, this is brilliant. This is a great way to, I'm sorry, not capture, to attach. So this is a great way to attach things to each other. And based on those curly Q little hooks, he invented what we all now refer to as Velcro. And so this is an example of us turning to nature for innovative solutions to everyday problems. And that is the work of biomimicry. And in the context of space, what a lot of people don't realize is there's this ironic relationship between exploring the stars, but needing planet Earth to do it. So what do I mean by that? When we send people, when we send human beings into space, there's all of these conditions that we as humans are not adapted to. Our biology is not necessarily best suited for experiencing, right? So in space, there's a lot of radiation. You have microgravity, which is a huge thing, right? On this planet, all of the blood in our body usually tends to head kind of down towards our toes because of gravity. Well, when you don't have gravity, the blood in your body tends to actually kind of float to your head. And so astronauts get puffy faces, right? Another thing is our muscles are used to kind of pushing against gravity. So when you're in space, you have muscular atrophy that astronauts have to deal with. So there's all of these different physiological and psychological things that we are used to seeing and experiencing on Earth that you don't have in space. And a part of the experience of being in space is figuring out what are the things from Earth that we need, like oxygen, like food, et cetera, et cetera, like gravity. What are the things on Earth that we need to take with us as we travel further and further into the stars? And a lot of innovation has taken place by turning to nature to help astronauts get further and do more in space. I just thought of this example, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was listening on NPR that we're talking about how the Japanese, was it you? Oh, wait. It was you who was telling me it wasn't uh -oh. you or my NPR. <laughs> Validation right there. <laughs> Anytime someone gets me mixed up with a reporter from NPR, <laughs> I'm on to something, people. Totally. I mean, you have reached the pinnacle of truth That's at it. that point. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, give us those examples that you share of like the lunar mission and the space right. suits. Because you're talking about the veins of the giraffes and how that... Little, okay, I don't want to take away your story, but... <laughs> no, no, you're doing good. This is the grasshopper teacher moment. So I think you can educate the people on what I'll share with you. <laughs> that means that I told the story well, right? Yeah. It just like embedded in my memory and... I didn't even know it was you. It was very like tricksy in a way. Okay. So which one do you remember? <laughs> okay. I'm cheating here because I have my notes. So there are actually two of them. That's okay. This is for the people. Yeah. Okay. The one that I remembered was of the lunar mission from the government of Japan and how the tires of the rover or the whatever, mm -hmm. I'll just call it a rover, are designed after camel's feet because it helps them to actually travel in the sandy landscapes of, was it the moon or Mars? I can't remember. The moon. The, the moon. moon, yeah. And then for the spacesuits, you were talking about how, let me cheat here, <laughs> it's inspired by giraffe's veins and mm -hmm. their skin and because they're such large animals, their heart has to pump up the blood to their very long necks and up to their heads or brains. And so the spacesuits are mimicked based on that kind of bioengineering of the giraffe. Yes. Nailed it. Yes. 10 for 10, ladies and gentlemen. What am I doing here? I think we're done. <laughs> I think you're just talking with yourself at this point. <laughs> no, I could never do what you do. I'm not as cool. I beg to differ. Let's beg to differ. We should have a vote on this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you have a podcast. I have to beg and plead to get attention. You have a platform. That's cool. I mean, you do too, but let's call it even-ish. Okay. -ish. All right. cool. <laughs> Although I think you're way higher on like... We'll call it a tie. Oh, wait. No, actually, it's not a tie because we're going to talk about how you have a show on Animal Planet. What the hell? <laughs> We're not even at all. Okay, knowledge-wise and like outreach-wise. But yeah, let's talk about that show. How does one, how does an astrobiofuturist get a show on Animal Planet? You know, it's funny. So the astrobiofuturist title came after the show, a science-based show is very informative about a lot of things. And, and as a storyteller, it was a great lesson in science communication and storytelling in different mediums. So as an architect, the physical environment is its own medium of storytelling. And as a science communicator, like social media is its own medium of storytelling. And then television is its own beast of storytelling. So that actually came out of my friend Bradley, who is co-host on this show, the show's called Little Giants. Bradley is a wildlife author, best-selling author and wildlife expert. So the show is he and I going out to these random locations around the world and finding these tiny little creatures who have these amazing adaptations and abilities. And we safely and humanely capture them or try to capture them and bring them back to this kind of mobile tent that we've set out out in the bush somewhere. And essentially, using these different tools, we capture and measure these amazing abilities that all these different myths and legends that have been created around this creature's abilities and adaptations, we kind of try to highlight them and measure them scientifically. And a lot of the organisms that we're looking for are endangered in, to some degree. So we're also trying to really highlight the importance and the cool factor of these organisms. And so that came to be because Bradley was already on the show. Was, he created the idea of this show. And he knew of the work that I was doing primarily on Facebook and a little bit on YouTube with this concept I had called Billy Biology, which was essentially me in my own vernacular explaining biological principles as I was learning them while I was studying biomimicry. So in the Billy Biology world, not the world, but when I was doing that, I was traveling to all these different ecosystems around the world and highlighting all of these really cool innovations that are just hiding in plain sight in the natural world. And so he gave me a call one day. It was like, look, we're filming the show. I think it would be hilarious if you and I were the host of this thing. He and I had known each other for like a more than a decade. And anytime that we get together, it's just 
like hilarity ensues right away. So he's Australian. So he's got like his Australian humor. I'm a brother with a certain type of humor. So anytime you put the two of us together, it's just a wild ride. And then I was like, heck yeah, of course. This was in my five-year plan to be on TV. And it's happened in two years. So why would I not do it? But yeah, that's essentially what happened. And it was an awesome experience. We traveled to all these amazing parts of the world. Thailand, I got to go to South Africa and Madagascar and all these places that I had on my travel wish list and biological travel wish list. And we got to go to those places and some other really cool locations and find these amazing little giants. Yeah, I watched some of the clips that you had on your website and y'all have good chemistry, I must say. There were, (laughs) I think the one clip where I was kind of like tickled was when I think it was the lemurs that were warning you about something in like the vicinity. (laughs) And you totally freaked out and I was just bawling. I was like, it's funny for me watching it right now, but like, I'm sure I would be freaking out too. But it turned out to be a very, like a highly venomous snake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about, (laughs) that's the other part of it. Like when you're actually filming in the wild, And there were so many snakes and like things that would just pop out. And my background as a practitioner of biomimicry is I'm not a field biologist. My background is as a designer, as an inventor. So I'm also learning about nature and biology every day. I have the reactions to nature that everyday people have being immersed in nature, even though I love nature and I have familiarity with biology. So if you're going to have a a bear jump out of the bushes, I'm going to respond like a brother who sees a bear jumping out the bushes. You know what I mean? I can tell you what kind of bear it is as I'm running. (laughs) Not as I'm running, but you know what I mean? In hindsight, you'll be like, oh yeah, it was a sun bear. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think that kind of makes me unique in the science communication space is like, look, my first reaction is going to be as someone who's has certain reactions to wildlife. And then it's going to be to appreciate the wildlife. <laughs> yeah. after. I would have been like, bye, peace out. You guys can do the show on your own. I love nature, but I know it's potential to kill. So I want to live yeah. another day. <laughs> yeah. That was a good show, though. I wish I had access to all of them at some point. But I wanted to ask you to share an example of your favorite little giant. And like, speak about it in the context of like a biomimicry if you can to give people another kind of example of what it means Mm. so by the way you can watch the show on animal planet go or discovery plus just want to plug it brothers always hoping for a season two you know what i'm saying oh is it with uh disney the discovery plus there's disney plus which is separate from discovery plus oh yeah Sorry, I, you're actually plugging it. I shouldn't be like saying, oh, well, that's too bad. I won't be watching we can, it. We'll come back and recut the promo later. No, it's on Discovery Plus. Go get it. Discovery Plus right now, streaming now, Animal Planet Go or Discovery Plus or Amazon Prime if you have access to Animal Planet. Ooh, okay, I do. Uh, I think then I can, yeah, watch it. There That's we accessible. Go. Boom. Nailed it. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> Mine sounds really bad. I don't even know what that was. Because <laughs> you're starting with a W. Uh, I think you got to start with either an E or a U. That's my trick. Yeah, I try yeah. to spell it as a thing. <laughs> yeah, see? See? Makes all the difference. Because if you use the W, it's more of like, wah, 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 which is like <laughs> closer true. to like, that's not the energy that we're going for. No. You know? oh, yeah. We want that. Yeah, yeah. With an echo too, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Anyways, you were plugging your show and you were going to tell us about your favorite little giants. My favorite little giant, one of the things that we got to see was a rhino beetle. And rhino beetles are listed as, I want to say pound for pound, the strongest animal on earth. They've been recorded as lifting objects, I think, 850 times their mass. So having the opportunity to see them up close 
was just amazing. They can get kind of big, but I can't tell you what how we highlighted it, but it was just cool to see these kind of organisms that live out there and what they're able to do. And again, from a design perspective, the biomechanics of so many different animals are just so creative. And I mean creative in terms of how they've been able to adapt to their environment to be optimal organisms within an ecosystem. So there was a project that I was doing around how can nature inform police shootings? How can biomimicry be applied to social justice around the idea of preventing police shootings? And the rhino beetle, when it feels threatened, it has this ability to rub its wings against the elytra, the wing cover, the kind of back coat that it has its wings sheathed or protected by. And it makes this like scratching, hissing sound that lets you know when it feels threatened. Uh, and so I use that as part of this project, this exploration of how biomimicry can be applied to preventing police shootings of unarmed people of color. So during that time, the rhino beetle became uh, a hero of mine. That's really cool. Tell us more. I'm intrigued, <laughs> if you can, unless it's a paper that you need to get published. But how does that translate into preventing police shooting or police brutality of people of color? Yeah, so just to kind of tie it all together, my title as Astrobiofuturist is all of those things that I talked about. The work itself that I do is what I refer to as restorative futures work. So it's the idea of like, how do we rehumanize a lot of these experiences, interactions, and how do we create and reimagine present things in a future context that is equitable and sustainable and full of possibility, right? So the work is restorative futures work. So this particular exploration for me was, I love biomimicry, but in, in the context of today and who I am, I am a Black man in, living in America. So how do I use this thing that I love, this process, this approach to problem solving, how do I use it to address this situation where I could walk outside and potentially be shot for no reason? Because for me, it was like, if I can't apply biomimicry to this issue, what use is it to me or to people who look like me? So I went on this exploration and I did all the research of what is the origins of the police force and how it's rooted in slave patrols and the economic context around police shootings. Where do they typically happen? And what is the biological context is another thing that I look at. Like what is actually happening in the biology of a police officer during these moments, right? What is happening psychologically to them? And then what is their biological or physiological state before or leading up to the moments of these encounters? And then I use that biological framework in order to essentially identify other examples in nature of biological responses to perceived threats. And this whole thing was based on the fact that when police officers are questioned around like, why did this police shooting take place? The justification is often that they felt that they perceived a threat. And for me, Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old boy who was gunned down because the police officer perceived him as a threat, as a 21-year-old man, a 12-year-old boy. And so for me, he was the inspiration for me trying to solve this. So I do all this research around the socioeconomic context, the historical context, and then the biological context. And then I use the biology around the question of how do we as humans respond when we perceive a threat to compare it to other examples in nature of organisms that perceive threats and how their biology responds. And based on those alternative responses, then I go into creating potential solutions that were based on how these other organisms respond to perceived threats to come up with alternatives to what is presently the practice in policing. And so the rhino beetle and its 
mechanisms of warning, mechanisms of communicating was one of the bee organisms that I study. Long way, but it's a whole cosmos of problem solving that you can tap into when you look into nature from space to police shootings. And that's what I do. Yeah, that's really cool. Because as you were talking about how in the animal kingdom, most animals can warn you when they feel threatened and mm-hmm. they're giving you an opportunity to back away, right? Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's just humans where we don't automatically or naturally just announce that we're threatened and make some sort of alert to let the other person know like, hey, I feel threatened here. So either like you tell me if you are really here to like hurt me or back away. And that's the thing, right? So a lot of what I found was that animals by and large go to great lengths to avoid inflicting a lethal or fatal action, right? So with rattlesnakes, when they feel threatened, they will rattle. They will even scoot away from you. They will put themselves in a posture to inform you that they're feeling threatened, right? There's these things called dimatic displays, these threat displays that animals have where they, you know, you see the birds that like get all hulked out to like look bigger, right? To intimidate perceived threats. You have animals that growling, hissing, make auditory warning signals. You have, I want to say, a postmatic displays of color where organisms or animals have certain colors that they either flash or that is a part of their anatomy that lets you know that they're toxic. One of my favorite examples when I was doing this research was the blue-ringed octopus. It's an organism that literally flashes blue lights to warn you that it's feeling threatened these little blue rings on its body. And in the ocean, I want to say that blue is a color that communicates toxicity. So this animal will swim away from you and it will flash to let you know that it feels threatened. And then if you keep pursuing it, it can bite you and the bite is lethal. But the thing about these attacks in nature is to inflict a lethal wound or action costs so much of the organism because now I've expended this resource that is precious to me that I don't necessarily have access to replenishing or I have to expend more energy than I'd like to to replenish it. So to inflict a lethal wound costs me a lot. So I'm going to do as much as I can around communicating that I'm feeling threatened to you before I just go to the lethal act. Yeah. And that's not necessarily something that happens in these moments where a police officer who, because of the occupation of policing, has an overworked fight or flight response. And whether they're intentionally racist or not, their body is already primed from their occupation to have some kind of reaction. And you add on top of that the psychological bias that goes into perceiving people of color, particularly Black men, as threats. So, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but there's this compounding phenomenon that takes place that leads to these moments where a 12-year-old boy can be gunned down for holding a toy gun and perceived as being a grown man. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. But it's also, just to give you an example of the expanse of applications of nature within different contexts to solve problems. This is what I do. Yeah, and thank you for that example, because I think it just makes it more, I guess, relatable in a sense. And so would it be safe to conclude that you, in terms of like the whole policing aspect and kind of your research on understanding how animals within the animal kingdom kind of like forewarn their potential predators is something that you're looking to apply in the case of the police brutalities and murders. I guess what I'm trying to say is like you're still trying to figure out how we can use biomimicry as a way to alleviate these responses from cops towards people of color. Yeah, no, I have several examples of ways to do it. So it's less about can it be done and more about what 
is being done or what are people willing to do that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So there's another part of our conversation that I wanted to talk a little bit about and we started talking about space. And so I I wanted to come back to that conversation from the aspect of, you mentioned earlier on that what you try to do is make the interconnection between space and biomimicry. I guess the question here is, what role does space education play in your work? And how do you connect it to biomimicry? In a couple of ways. So one, I think traditionally stargazing, storytelling, and looking to the stars have led to so many advances in mathematics and science from the beginning of time, right? Navigation. All of these things came out of our observation of the stars. And when you realize that the first scientists were indigenous people that would look to the stars and see patterns and see connections and see relationships, I think it helps make space exploration feel accessible when you root it in the past of people, especially people and kids of color. So part of my work is really rooted in one, in terms of educational outreach and workshops oriented towards getting kids involved in STEM. It's rooted in communicating the idea that STEM is everywhere and it's in everything. It's in a leaf. It's in the microscopic structure of the wings of an insect. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in how we travel. It's in our cell phones. It's in how our cell phones can read our biology and unlock all of the things that are on our cell phones. And so when you use nature as a way to reveal the veil of science, it also shows you how easy you can recognize scientific principles that are hidden in everything that you can touch and see with your own eyes. And when you do that with space and you talk about the relationship between space and nature and how space exploration is still rooted in these biological concepts, you tie it together in a way that all of it is accessible and there's still more that a child can explore based on their own curiosity and come up with solutions for different problems but also futures and identities for themselves as space travelers when they might not necessarily see themselves that way presently, especially within the context of how people of color, particularly Black kids or Black people, are shown in media. So you've given presentations to NASA folks on this. Mm -hmm. What is the message that you're delivering to them as far as your work, and how do they react to it? My first thing is, I feel like some people are hard to read. (laughs) Some people are hard to read initially. And this was virtually. So you're not there to like feed off the energy. But I did get a lot of very appreciative and insightful responses. Some I can't necessarily talk about. Yeah. Very encouraging, very encouraging and exciting. That's good. So the thing that I was talking about was a lot of what I was alluding to earlier. So the presentation that I started with was around the experience of being in space and what astronauts commonly say are issues of being in space for long periods of time. There's the psychological challenges of, you know, essentially being bored in space. There's not a whole lot you can do inside a space station presently, and they're not necessarily designed for leisure, and it can be very repetitive. The thing is, when you're in space, every decision is about survival, right? Like, the fact that you can't eat crackers on the International Space Station. Well, because crackers create particulates, and the last thing you want is salt (laughs) floating around in the space station that could get into somebody's eye while they're trying to, like, operate a robotic crane. (laughs) So there's all these different interesting quirks. I don't think that's changed. You're not allowed to drink alcohol. Of course. So the way that I frame the experience of traveling or being in space for eight months Plus, it can be very boring. And the thing that I contrasted that with is I show this picture of inside the International Space Station, and then I show this picture of a forest. I asked, which would you rather be in 
or which of these looks more calming and more rejuvenating? Because the thing is like the downtime for astronauts needs to be extremely rejuvenating. And then I show them essentially the design of how I believe we can create immersive environments inside a space module that can elicit all of the psychological benefits that we get from any time that we are immersed in a natural environment. And I kind of show them how I think we can execute this with different elements and technology. Yeah, it's been pretty interesting, all that kind of comes together and people's reactions to it. There's also the futurist part of Astrobiofuturist. And if you don't sound weird or crazy when you're talking about something, you're not thinking deep enough into the future of what's possible. And any futurist who is worth their weight in gold will tell you that futurism is not about predicting the future. It's about understanding where the intersection of a company or a person's purpose and objectives and mission reside and how they work with a track of trends that are taking place. And then how can you identify the ideal scenario at a certain point in time in the future? And how do you essentially backtrack breadcrumbs of opportunity that will lead you to manifesting that future at the end? So it's an interesting process. Yeah, basically, I'm thinking holodeck from Star Trek. (laughs) See, and for me, that is an eventuality. And what I was presenting was one of the breadcrumbs to eventually get to that point of holodeck, something that's a little bit more practical and near term that is on the track to that. Yeah. So as you were talking, it reminded me of this article that was citing studies that said when we look at images of nature, it helps us calm down. Yes. Yes. There's this Japanese practice. I want to say it's called Shinroku, which translates to forest bathing. Mm -hmm. And it's literally this practice of going out and just like being in a natural environment and being immersed in it. And you get all of these psychological triggers, stress release that calms you down. There's studies that have shown that even having a view of artificial plants has been shown to help boost the mood and to some degree the health of people recovering in hospitals. So we are accustomed to being in nature and space stations are in a lot of ways, the most alien thing we can experience because you're in a metal tube spinning through nothing or hurling through nothing, surrounded by complete darkness. And to some degree, you're drinking everyone's recycled pee with no alcohol. Mm, mm. That's how I like to frame up space. It's like, <laughs> and no crackers? What? <laughs> and no crackers, right? It's a closed loop system. So space is an interesting place. And I think we can make it more beneficial psychologically and leisurely for future space travelers. Gosh, as you're talking, it's really bringing this topic kind of like, it's bringing it home to me because I was thinking that, yes, nature is such a fundamental part of like our very existence, our very being. And as we venture out into space and look for other homes, how is that going to impact us as human beings when we don't have that connection to the forest or plants, that greenery, the animals? Like, how is that going to change our personality as human beings? Yeah, I think that's a big question is, who do we want to become? Because the more that we're in space, the more, A, we have to take Earth with us, And what are the implications of that when we get to other planets? How are we changing other planets? Or we have to change ourselves. And when we change ourselves, what do we then become? Are we still human? What defines humanity? What defines humanity now? All of these questions come out of thinking about that. Mm. So fun times. Oh my gosh, this is definitely, I guess, another session to have or to continue the conversation. One thing I'm just curious to ask you, last question on space, is what does the Perseverance rover landing on Mars mean to you as an astrobiofuturist? I think it's dope. 
like, <laughs> I mean, all of the footage that I've seen, okay, one, all of the math that it takes to figure out how do we shoot something to another planet, knowing that there's a time delay between whether or not we'll know if it actually landed safely, right? And then how do we shoot something to another planet and then cause it to detach from what we initially shot it from and then allow it to enter the atmosphere, hover, and then lower down a little rover vehicle that's got a helicopter attached underneath it in a place that has significantly lower atmosphere and figuring out how to fly in ridiculously thin air. Mm -hmm. So you've got one, I mean, there's multiple pieces to it, but just for the sake of illustration, you've got, oh, I forgot this is a podcast, so you can't even <laughs> see what I'm doing with my hands. Well, we're recording it so they can see it. Oh, okay, okay. So you've got them shooting, you've got the release, you've got the entering the atmosphere, then you've got a release of a parachute, and then the parachute goes away, and then you've got this hovering mechanism the sky crane that is lowering something down to the surface. It's got a helicopter on its belly. There's a lot of math involved there, right? And the thing that excites me about space, my interest in space or space exploration is purely around how can we use all of these things to solve human problems on Earth? That is where my passion is rooted. It's an empathy, an empathy connection for me. So when I see that sky crane it makes me think, okay, how can we use this for natural disasters? Like, how can we, in those places where trees fall down or, because if we're not using these things for this planet, then the value isn't as strong as we want to believe that it is. So if we can't find a way, and I love that NASA, you're able to license certain elements of technology from NASA. Right. And there's so many things that we've gotten from space exploration with the freezing. Uh, I was just having this conversation with someone on Clubhouse the other day with people freezing in Texas. One of the things they don't realize, or even during natural disasters, whenever you see people put on those like shiny blankets, those mylar blankets, that came from space exploration. But people don't necessarily associate it. So for me, it's I'm excited by the potential applications of all these things, as much as the fact that we were able to shoot something to another planet and have it land successfully, right? That's cool. But what can we do with that on Earth? So from that perspective, it was very exciting to see. Yeah, totally. One thing that I was completely blown away by, no pun intended, is <laughs> that they landed exactly where they wanted to without having details, exact details of the landscape. They just knew that they wanted to land in this, like what they believed was a lake that dried up, I don't know, 350 million years ago. But there had to be like very, well, I guess they knew some information. Maybe I take that back because they had to land with such specificity because there were other like boulders around and whatnot. But it's just amazing to me that we have this amount of detail on another planet. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Mars is a trip. Mars is a trip. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. It reminds me of that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. What was it called? Yes. It's starts with a C. <laughs> Not the running man. Total recall. Yeah. It didn't start with yes. a C, but there was a C in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Total Recall, actually. That's actually a good, had some movie. good, That's good a good points movie. about Mars. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I get all my spice references. <laughs> Star Trek and Total Recall. I love both of those. Yeah. So my last question here before we go into the lightning round is, what advice would you give to other kids of color, Black, African-American kids about amalgamating their identities and owning it? And another thing that kind of like, if you can also speak to this is like, how did you figure your way around this stuff? Like, who did you talk to? Did you have mentors? Like, yeah, it's simple, but it's not easy. I'm 35 as of February 2nd. Thank you. <laughs> and all of the things that I'm doing now were things that I was interested in as a kid. And the bravest thing that I have done in my life is to choose to re-engage the dreams that I had as a kid and to hold on to them. And so now I'm 
an astrobiofuturist because when I was a kid, I wanted to be an inventor and I thought space was awesome. And I love designing things and coming up with technology and quirky inventions in my imagination. And that's what I'm doing now. It wasn't easy. The path is never straight. It's all kinds of squiggly lines, but it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Your life, your purpose, it's a marathon. And hold on to the things that you enjoy, no matter the criticism, no matter the skepticism that you get from others, even people who love you and want the best for you, but don't see your vision. Hold on to who you love being and be courageous enough to find whatever small manifestation of who you want to be in everything that you do, in every job that you have. There is a small bit of who you want to eventually be that you can find in that work. And once you do that, eventually you'll have this amalgamation, you'll have this compounded body of work and confidence that what you've wanted to become, you've been able to sculpt piece by piece into who you are. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. I wish we had people like you and us growing up. And I'm glad that we have that now because growing up, at least for me, it was you were one thing or the other. You couldn't be two things at once. But what people like you are showing are you can be a combination of the multiple passions that you have and you can do something tangible with it and impactful stuff with it. So I'm glad you serve as that example. Thank you. Of course. Well, let's go into the lightning round here. So we have a series of four questions and answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? The Matrix, I think, is when I think of teaching people about STEM, the Matrix comes to mind, especially like one of the last scenes where Neil like stands up after he's kind of been reborn and he's looking around and he sees everything completely different and he sees all the code and all the underlying rules and all that. To me, that's STEM and the natural world. Is that what you see too? Yeah. Sorry, that was a poor joke. The no, next sorry. question is... <laughs> I wish I saw it that way. I wish I saw it that way. Next question is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Deconstructing challenges into small things that I can do that feel manageable and don't feel overwhelming and just chipping away at it until it's all chipped away. Like making big things, intimidating things, really, really small, and then just keep going until it's all, all done. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Be you. Yeah. Be yourself. Yeah. What's your superpower? Honestly, I think it's celebrating other people. I love to celebrate human beings for the inherent awesomeness that we all have. And I love reminding people how awesome they are. Not everybody believes me when I say it, but we are such a special celestial being. We are such a, an amazing collection of concentrated stardust, right? So each of us has our own flair. And I love to make people smile. And I love to just remind people that even in everyday things and mundane tasks, people are still awesome. Yeah. Gosh, you'd be like a really good I can't think of the word, a good mascot-ish, but not like, not in the comical way, but like... I will take that. <laughs> no, I will take that. One of the greatest compliments someone ever gave me was telling me that I had the same Myers-Briggs personality as Mickey Mouse. Oh! I was like, that's <laughs> Mickey Mouse's... I can't unsee it now. <laughs> yeah, so... We need that, though. I think... Every person needs that one person in their life who is going to be kind of like their uplifter, their booster in whatever circumstances it may be. Because I think we all need that at the end of the day. So thank you for being that for your people. Thank you. Of course. This was awesome. Yeah. So my last-ish question is, how can we follow you on your journey? Oh, that's a great question. Right now, the best form is honestly through Instagram. My handle is at Billy underscore Almond, A-L-M-O-N. That is the best place to 
currently see any of my work or follow along. And if you have any inquiries around me talking to your students or hosting a workshop or whatever for a class or educators, billyallman.com. Yep, 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 yep. I think we need more students to have access to your way of thinking because do you think your children will be the first generation to go to space? Like to live in space or yeah. to like go to Mars or? I don't know, just everyday people going into space. Not wealthy people, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah? I do. We're that close? I do. Okay. Yeah. Just one generation away. Yep. Yeah, I think we're that close. That's pretty cool. Well, good thing we have this recorded because we can come back <laughs> 150 years later. <laughs> you were three generations off. You're no good. No. <laughs> but you did say you don't predict the future as a futurist, right? Thank you. So. What good is a futurist without that disclaimer? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Billy, for your time. This has been a very fun conversation. I hope we get to have a second rendition of it because I feel like there's so much more, especially around the space and social justice elements that I think would be another great conversation to have. So I'll save that for others so that like they're curious when the second one comes around. And I mean, interview. So thanks again. And we'll be in touch. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings. 